Today the sermon text is Ephesians 6, 14-17, so we will eventually go there, Ephesians 6, 14-17, but we will read, first of all, Isaiah chapter 11, Old Testament reading, Isaiah chapter 11. This is a messianic passage, it speaks of the coming Messiah long before Christ was born uh, through Isaiah the prophet. He is that um, shoot from the stump of Jesse that we will hear about. So Isaiah chapter 11 and then Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. I heard that last week the text was very small up on the screen. I, I didn't realize it. I have this custom of copying and pasting the whole passage in one slide and then breaking it up into smaller pieces until it gets bigger and bigger. And I must have forgot to do that last week. Forgive me. But there it is for you this week, Isaiah chapter 11. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, and, together, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let's go now to the New Testament, to Ephesians 6. And we will read verses 14 through 17. Here Paul continues his exhortation to the people of God to put on the whole armor of God. And in Ephesians 6.14 he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So far the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to the preaching of it today. In the passage that we considered on the last Lord's Day, Paul commanded Christians to be strong in the Lord. And so this should be our aim, brothers and sisters, maturity in Christ, strength in Christ. I have noticed that sometimes one Christian will say to another who is experiencing some difficulty, hang in there, brother, or hang in there, sister. And while I think it is fine to encourage one another in this way, I think I have said the same thing myself. I do hope that we have it as our aim not to merely hang in there, but instead to thrive in the Christian life, to be mature in Christ, to be strong in the Lord. This must be our aim, for this is what the Apostle commands. It is the command that he issues. We are to be strong in the Lord. And we know that one of the ways that we will grow strong in the Christian life is to daily gird ourselves for battle. This is the second thing that the Apostle commands. Put on the whole armor of God, he says. And so if we are to be strong in the Lord, we must choose to dress ourselves with the armor of God daily. And why do we need armor? Well, Paul reminded us of why we need armor in the passage that we considered last week. We need armor because we are not at home. But we are sojourners living in a hostile land. We are not living in peacetime, but we are at war. We have a fierce enemy who is always scheming. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters, that there is a spiritual battle that rages all about us? It is for this reason that we must daily take up the whole armor of God, that we may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. That is Ephesians 6.13. And you will notice that the passage before us today begins with another command. Stand, therefore, is the first thing that the Apostle says to us in this passage. Stand, therefore. This is the fourth commandment found in this section. Be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God, take up the whole armor of God. And now the Apostle simply says, stand, therefore. The image is that of a Roman centurion taking a firm stance against an enemy that is seeking to overrun him. So if we're to picture this in our mind's eye, this courageous soldier, this strong soldier with his feet firmly planted in the ground. He will not give an inch, but he is resolved to repel the enemy at all costs. And this, brothers and sisters, is to be our posture in Christ Jesus. This is to be our posture in the spiritual battle that is even now raging all about you. We are to stand, therefore, the apostle says. And sadly, I have noticed that many who profess faith in Christ do not stand. They are very easily moved in this world. And I think there are many reasons for this. Perhaps they are unaware of the battle that rages all around them. And so they wander casually and carelessly about, oblivious to the enemy and his schemes. I think this is true for a lot of Christians. They have forgotten that we are in a battle. I think this is particularly a threat to those 
Christians who live in cultures where there is freedom and peace and prosperity and comfort. It is easy for us in cultures like this to be lulled into a sense of complacency. We forget that there is a spiritual battle that is raging all around us. And as I have said before in that previous sermon, naivete and complacency are particularly deadly things. They are a particularly deadly combination during wartime. They can lead men and women to walk around casually and carelessly when in fact there is a fierce enemy at the gates, a fierce enemy who never rests. And so friends, we must remember that we are not at peace. There is a spiritual battle that is constantly raging. It is a battle for souls. It is even a battle for your soul. Or perhaps men and women do not stand because they have not learned where the battle lines are. So many who profess faith in Christ are willing to be pushed around by the world. And in no time at all, they begin to think like the world, speak like the world, act like the world. Friends, we must remember that the world is under the sway of the evil one. The kingdoms and cultures of this world are often opposed to God's kingdom. And if we are in Christ, then we must be prepared to stand against the currents of this culture. And if we hope to stand, we must first know where to set our feet. We must know God's word. We must be governed by His truth. And never should we give an inch when the evil one uses the world to press hard against us. We must know where the battle lines are if we hope to take this stand. Or perhaps the one who professes faith in Christ is aware of the battle. Perhaps they know where they ought to stand, but they are weak in faith. And they are easily pushed this way and that by the enemy. I'm afraid that this is also often the case. If we are to stand against the evil one, then we must be strong in the Lord. That is what Paul is commanding here. The evil one will certainly press hard against us. And so we must be strong if we are to withstand that push. And so I might ask, are you strong in the Lord, brothers and sisters? Are you strong in Him? Are you in good shape, spiritually speaking? Or have you grown soft? Have you grown weak? All who are in Christ need to be exhorted in this way. But I think it is particularly important for our young people to hear this. Young people, you have grown up under the shelter of your parents' home. And of course the enemy has attacked you even there. I I do not doubt it. I am not denying this, that the evil one can attack even within the home and tempt the mind of, of young people who are growing up under the protection of Christian parents. But you have enjoyed a level of protection being raised in a Christian home by a mom or, or, and or a dad who has faith in Christ. But, but there will come a time when you will go out to establish a household of your own. Do you realize that? That time will come very quickly, in fact. You will go out to establish a household of your own. And what I am saying to the young people, the, the question that I am asking is, will you be ready to do that? Will you be ready to stand when that day comes? You will not stand all alone, for you will have the church of God to stand with you. Nevertheless, the challenges and pressures will be greater as you move on into adulthood and into independency. Will you be ready to stand? That is my question. And if you are very young right now, listening to this, you probably are thinking to yourself, I'm not ready. And and that's fine. I, I, I was not ready and didn't feel ready when I was very young. I didn't even feel ready when I was a little bit older either. But my question to you is, if you are 
emerging into adulthood, if you are a teenager, are you going to be ready to stand when the time comes for you to go and to establish a household of your own and to live an independent life? I am encouraging you, our young people, to grow strong in the Lord even now, to make this a priority, not to be slack in this, but to seek to be mature in Christ right now, today, so that you are also able to stand with us as you emerge into adulthood. The pressures that the enemy puts upon the people of God as we sojourn in this world can be very great. And we need to be ready to stand. The command is to stand, but notice that Paul commands us to stand in the armor which God has provided. If we are in Christ, then we are in the Lord's army. We have no choice. If we are in Christ, we are by default in the Lord's army. And never should a soldier of the Lord be found on the battle line unprepared and ill-equipped. God has supplied you with armor. And here the apostle is commanding you to have it on. You must have it on. You as a soldier in the Lord's army must be dressed for battle daily. For the battle never ceases. Specifically, we are commanded to stand, having fastened on the belt of truth. God has provided for you a belt. It is called the belt of truth, and you are to have it on. Uh, Though we might think otherwise, a belt is among the most important items in a soldier's armament. I think this was especially true in ancient times. The clothes that a Roman centurion wore, they were loose, they were free-flowing, and the belt held everything together and in place so that the soldier could move freely and unhindered as he fought. And this is what truth does for the believer. Truth, that is God's revealed truth. Truth that is properly understood. Truth that is sincerely believed. Truth that is consistently applied is like a belt for the believer. It holds everything together. To know the truth, that is to sincerely believe it and to live according to it, it will enable the believer to fight with freedom. It will enable the believer to fight with efficiency. But to be ignorant of the truth, to be plagued by doubt or hypocrisy, will lead to a cumbersome existence. The Christian who is ignorant of God's truth, the Christian who is doubtful, the Christian who is living a life of hypocrisy, will find themselves often entangled with many of life's difficulties. They will often stumble, therefore. They will even fall when the enemy presses hard against them, and they will be overrun. And so do you know the truth, brothers and sisters? Even more to the point, do you believe the truth sincerely in the mind and heart, and do you strive to live according to it? I want for you to hear this very clearly. The Christian has not fastened on the belt of truth if she has merely learned the truth but has not believed it sincerely leading to obedience. Instead, the Christian fastens on the belt of truth when she knows the truth, believes it, and obeys it. There is a great difference, brothers and sisters, between merely knowing the truth and knowing it so that we believe and obey it. As James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ walked in this world having fastened on the belt of truth. In that Isaiah passage that we read at the start of this sermon, 
It was predicted that in due time a Savior would arise from Israel. He is that shoot from the stump of Jesse. And in that passage we learn many things about this Messiah. One of them being that he would have righteousness and faithfulness as the belt of his loins. The Hebrew word that is translated as faithfulness could also be rendered truth or integrity. And the meaning is that Christ would walk in this world with perfect integrity and always according to the truth. And this he did. And this he will do for all eternity. Truth was Christ's belt. It is his belt. He revealed the truth to us and lived according to it always. And we are to do the same if we are in Christ. We are to be clothed by him and we are to walk as he walked. So have you fastened on the belt of truth? Have you put all filthiness and rampant wickedness away and received with meekness the implanted word? which is able to save your souls, James 1.22. Have you believed God's word sincerely so as to live according to it? This you are to do daily, so that you might move freely and unhindered as a soldier of Christ, which will enable you to stand firm. Put on the belt of truth is the command. Secondly, Paul commands us to stand, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a piece of armor that would cover from the neck down to the waist in both the front and the back, protecting the vital organs of the soldier. We're to picture this in our minds, by the way. I hope that you see this Roman centurion being dressed before you with this, with this armor. Picture his belt of truth. Also picture this breastplate that he wore. From the neck down to the waist, both in the front and the back, this armor would protect the centurion from attack. His vital organs, his heart would be protected. If this soldier were to go out onto the field of, the, of battle without this breastplate, it would mean almost certain death for him. The soldier's heart would be exposed to every thrust of the spear and every dart thrown in his direction by the enemy. And the apostle says that the Christian's breastplate is to be put on and his breastplate is constructed of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, he says. Now to be righteous is to be right before God. To be guiltless, to be pure. Only if we are righteous before God will our hearts be guarded from the attacks of the evil one, which come in the form of accusations. This is how we protect our heart, by clothing ourselves with Righteousness. Only if we are righteous will our hearts be guarded from the attacks of the evil one, which come in the form of accusations. Have you ever been accused by the evil one? Have you ever heard his condemning voice come against you? Think of how sinful you are. God does not love you. How could you be a child of his, given, given your sin? You, you hear the accuser speak to you in this way. He is called the accuser, and for good reason. He attacks the people of God in many ways, but one of them being to accuse them of their sin and of their guilt. And so how important it is for our hearts to be guarded from these attacks. We must put on the breastplate of righteousness if we are to withstand them. But the question remains, where do we get this breastplate of righteousness? Where does it come from? Where does this righteousness out of which this breastplate is constructed come from? Is it our righteousness or is it the righteousness of another? 
And friends, we must answer the question in this way, saying that it must be the righteousness of another, for we do not have a righteousness of our own. Truth be told, we do stand guilty before God, if left to ourselves. The evil one is, in fact, correct when he accuses us of sin and reminds us of our guilt. That is, unless our sins have been atoned for and our guilt removed. This breastplate of righteousness that we are here commanded to put on is not our own. This breastplate is made from the righteousness that belongs to Christ. He was without sin and guilt. He was truly righteous. And we come to have His righteousness as our own when we turn from our sin and when we believe upon His name. It is in this moment, in the moment that we believe, that a great exchange takes place. Our sin and guilt is removed having been paid for on the cross by our Savior. And His righteousness is imputed or applied to us. It is the great exchange. The moment we believe our guilt and sin is removed and His righteousness is given to us. The same Paul who wrote Ephesians also wrote Philippians. And there in that epistle he says concerning himself, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having, Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Here is Paul, the Christian. Paul, a mature Christian, a relatively holy individual compared maybe to you and me. But here even this Paul is saying, I do not have a righteousness of my own. I don't have such a breastplate. But the righteousness that I have, I have received from Christ. It is His righteousness given to me. That is the righteousness that I am clothed with. It is by the grace of God. It depends on faith. It is received by faith. And so when Paul commands the believer in Ephesians to put on the breastplate of righteousness, he cannot mean put on your own righteousness as a breastplate. He must instead and first and foremost mean put on the righteousness of Christ, which is yours by the grace of God alone and received by faith alone, for he himself teaches that we do not have such a breastplate of our own, but must be clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Christ does in fact have righteousness to give. In another passage in Isaiah, in fact it was the one that we read last week at the start of the sermon, the coming Messiah was described in this way. Isaiah is a beautiful book, brothers and sisters. That prophet was blessed of the Lord to reveal so many glorious things concerning the coming of the Messiah ahead of time. But in that passage, which we read last week, Isaiah 59, this is what we read concerning the coming Messiah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vision, vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. When Christ put on righteousness as a breastplate, he put on his own righteousness, for he was truly righteous. Never did he sin. He always did what was right before God, and this righteousness that is His, truly, He now gives to all who call upon His name. So what does it mean for the Christian to put on the breastplate of righteousness as Paul commands? How do we do this uh, practically speaking? How do we accomplish it daily? Well, 
We should remember that Christ's righteousness is given to, it, given to us the moment we turn from our sins and believe upon Him. It is then, at the start of the Christian life, that we come to have Christ's righteousness as our own. But here the Christian is being commanded to pick up that righteousness that is already theirs, having been received by faith, and to put it on as armor. We are to pick up this spiritual breastplate, and we are to put it on daily and even momentarily, so that when the enemy comes to attack, delivering blow after blow in the form of accusation, we are able to deflect those blows. This means that we must regularly be reminded of the gospel that we have believed. We must hear the good news preached, and we must even preach it to our own souls, lest we be overrun by the accuser. We must remember what Christ has accomplished for us. He has removed our guilt, and He has given us His righteousness, all of this received by faith. And we must not move on from these gospel truths, but we must remember them daily. And I think this is what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It is to take up that gospel truth again and again, and it is to apply it to our own souls. I'm actually reminded of that wonderful little passage in the allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember that book? We went through it together. That was a wonderful study, wasn't it? It was good for us as adults. I think it was good for our children. But that allegory is so powerful. And in that allegory, there is this figure that goes by the name Apollyon. Do you remember him? He, repre he represents our adversary, the devil. And in that book, at one point, he comes against that character, Christian. And what does he do? He begins to accuse him. He reminds Christian of his sin and, and of his unfaithfulness to Christ. And this is indeed what the evil one does. He accuses the brethren. But I do love the response of Christian in that allegory to these accusations of Apollyon. He, he answers Apollyon's accusations in, in this way. Listen carefully. All of this is true, he says to Apollyon. And much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. It is such a simple response to Apollyon, but it puts his accusations to death. They have no power. A Christian does not mention Christ's righteousness imputed to him here, which is our focus uh, at this point in the sermon. But the illustration is still helpful, I think. When Apollyon accused Christian, he did not defend himself by appealing to his own righteousness as if he had some. Quite to the contrary, he, he, actually, he actually speaks to Apollyon in this way. He, he says, you're right. My sins are many. My unfaithfulness to Christ is so great. In fact, you don't even know the half of it, Apollyon. There's more that you don't know. But then what does he appeal to you? He appeals to the mercy of God and to the forgiveness of sins that he has received through faith in Christ. And, and we must do the same, brothers and sisters. As the evil one, evil one comes to accuse us, we must take up that breastplate of righteousness that is received by faith and we must put it on. We are to deflect the accusations of the evil one in this way by appealing to Christ, to the forgiveness of sins that we have in Him and to His righteousness imputed to us and received by faith. But then I will say this in addition. Having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, our hearts being guarded by that alien righteousness imputed to us, we are to go on living a righteous life ourselves. I hope that you would agree with this. And in so doing, we will guard our hearts all the more against the attacks of the evil one.
Having been clothed in Christ's righteousness, we are to live righteous ourselves. Having been made holy, we are to live holy. And perhaps this righteous walk is also in view when the Apostle says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. But it cannot be the first thing that he means. If we are righteous, truly right before God, and therefore impervious to the accusations of the evil one, it is only because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Thirdly, in verse 15, the Apostle commands us to put shoes on our feet. He says that our shoes are the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers wore sandals with thick leather soles, and these would actually be embedded with pieces of rock for traction. They were like cleats, I guess, in those days. And these sandals with the toes exposed, thick leather soles, they were uh, tied to the soldier's feet uh, using numerous straps. And so these sandals were strong, but they were also lightweight, enabling the soldier to stand firm and to move with agility on the battlefield. And Paul identifies the Christian spiritual shoes as the readiness given by the gospel of peace. There's some debate as to what this refers to. Does Paul mean that the gospel and the peace that it brings enables the Christian to stand firm and to move about with agility in the spiritual battle? Or does he mean that the Christian is to be prepared to take this gospel of peace and proclaim it to those who do not yet believe? Do you see the difference in the two opinions? What is he saying here? Does the gospel enable us to move with agility and to stand firm personally? Or is he here saying that we are to put on the the, the shoes of the gospel so that we might take the gospel and proclaim it? Now, no doubt the gospel is to be proclaimed by the believer. Paul says this elsewhere. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, Romans 10.15. But I think his emphasis here is that the gospel of peace makes the Christian ready. It provides the Christian with a sure footing. It enables her to stand firm in battle so that she does not slip. The shoes of the gospel, preparedness, they enable the Christian to run swiftly through life with grace and with agility. The gospel of peace makes the Christian happy and cheerful. It makes them light on their feet. The gospel of peace, that is the good news that through faith in Christ we are made right with God, must be taken up and applied to the feet of the believer day after day. Do you wish to stand firm? Do you wish to run swiftly with grace and agility? Then do not forget the gospel of peace. Stand firm upon the foundation of this gospel. Take this good news with you into every situation, into every endeavor, into every relationship, into every conversation. Do not leave it behind, but stand upon it always. The gospel of peace, that is to say, the wonderfully good news that we are at peace with God through faith in the Savior, is to be with us always. It is our foundation and our footing. For those of you who have been in the church a long time, or maybe raised even within the church, we can begin to take this for granted, I think. Do you know how wonderful it is to be pardoned by God? To be right with Him? To have your sins forgiven? It is a wonderful blessing. It is everything, in fact. We can endure every trial and tribulation that life brings our way, knowing that we are in a right relationship with God, that He is our Father and that we are His beloved children. Nothing is greater than that. Nothing is more empowering than that. 
Nothing brings more joy than that. But what a terrible thing to know that we stand condemned before God, as those who are not in Christ do. What a heavy burden to bear, to stand guilty before the God of all creation. But that is not how the Christian stands. We stand with our feet girded with this gospel of peace. We are able, therefore, to be strong in this world as we face trials and tribulations. We are able to run with agility, therefore, with grace, as we take this gospel with us into each and every circumstance of life. I suppose that this is true of all items of clothing, but it feels especially true of shoes. Your choice of shoes will be dictated by the activities you plan to engage in on that day. Have you noticed that? If you're going to the beach, you will wear sandals probably and not boots. If you're going to a wedding, you will wear dress shoes, I hope, and not sandals. And if you are working in the yard, you will wear boots and not dress shoes. Every day we decide what shoes to put on, and that decision is dictated by the activities of the day. But what are the shoes that we are to apply to our spiritual feet? No matter what the activities of the day may be, our shoes are the same. In Christ, we are to have the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet. And with the gospel of peace as shoes for our feet, we will be ready. That is what the apostle is saying. You will be ready, well prepared to face the day. The gospel is to go with us into each and every situation of life. We are to take the gospel of peace with us and we are to set our feet down upon it. It is our sure foundation, our confidence. It is our peace and joy no matter what life brings. The gospel remains true. Our peace with God is secure. It was the gospel of peace that enabled Paul to write these words in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Do you hear the gospel here? Do you hear Paul preaching it to the Romans and even to himself, identifying it as our firm foundation? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He continues, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, can any of these things separate us from God? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's answer to the question, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel of peace is what enabled Paul to write these words. How could Paul maintain such a firm and unwavering disposition in the midst of such awful trials and tribulations? Do you know about his life? Do you remember what he endured for the sake of Christ? Do you remember the persecutions? Do you remember the hunger? Do you remember the mistreatment? Do you remember that he himself was killed for his faith? How did he maintain such a firm and unwavering disposition in the midst of all of this? How was he still filled with joy, having been so badly abused? And he was filled with joy. He had the gospel of peace as shoes for his feet. And do you wish to run with confidence? Do you wish to be this light on your feet, impervious to the trials and tribulations of life? Then put as shoes for your feet. Put them on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. 
Fourthly, Paul commands us to, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In ancient times, soldiers would often carry a shield into battle. The shields would sometimes be covered in leather, and the leather would be soaked in water to extinguish the flaming arrows flung by the enemy. The shields would also be used to deflect other objects hurled in the soldiers' direction, stones, spears, and the like. And we must remember that the evil one does send flaming arrows, stones, and spears in our direction. They are lies, they are insults, they are insinuations, they are accusations. And only a shield of faith will deflect these blows and extinguish these arrows. Faith here does not refer to generic faith, as in faith in something, or baseless hope, or wishful thinking. Even the world has this kind of faith. They believe in something. But faith here means faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in His very great promises. To have faith is to believe in God and in Christ. To have faith is to know for certain that God will keep His word. To have faith is to live with confidence. Confidence not in yourself, but in God who is ever faithful. The evil one will cast many arrows in your direction. His arrows are lit aflame with the fires of hell, and he does seek to consume you with these flames. He will say things to you like God does not care for you. God has abandoned you, and he's nowhere to be found. He will say things like this also. His word is not true. He has lied to you. It would be better if you were to live not for him and for the world to come, but for yourself and for the pleasures of this life. Have you heard this from the evil one? Look at how miserable the people of God are in this world. You know, they go without so many pleasures. For what? The evil one says. These are flaming arrows of the evil one that he casts in your direction. And you had better have the shield of faith. You professed faith in God and in Christ at the beginning. You claimed to trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins and for life everlasting. But here the Apostle is exhorting you to walk by faith and not by sight, to daily take up this shield of faith so that you might repel the constant attack of the evil one, to trust in Him, to rely upon God and Christ always. Fifthly, Paul commands the Christian to take the helmet of salvation The helmet of salvation belongs to Christ. In fact, all of this armor does. It was His originally. He wore it always. He wore it perfectly, and He gives it to us. But the helmet of salvation does certainly belong to Him. He used it to defeat all of His and our enemies. Again, Isaiah 59, 17 prophesied concerning the coming Messiah, saying, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. This helmet of salvation belongs to Christ, for He has earned salvation, but He gives it to us, and it is received by faith. If you are in Christ, that is to say, if you are united to Him by faith, then you are saved in Him, saved from your sins, saved from the evil one, delivered from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light, rescued from eternal death, and you are heirs of life eternal. This salvation that was earned by Christ and that is yours through faith in Him, is to be applied daily as a helmet for your head to guard your mind. I'm reminded of what the Apostle revealed to us concerning his prayer for the Ephesians back in 115 of this epistle that we are studying. 
There he prayed this way, saying, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. What was Paul's prayer? He was praying that the minds and hearts of the Ephesian Christians would be enlightened, uh, that they would forever grow in their knowledge of and in their appreciation for this wonderful salvation that was theirs in Christ Jesus. He was there in 1, 15-21 revealing that he prayed for this. And now here when he commands us to put on the helmet of salvation, he is telling us to do this very thing. That is to, to take up this wonderful truth that we have concerning our salvation and to put it on our head daily so that our minds might be guarded from the attacks of the evil one. Do you know how rich you are in Christ? Do you know how great a salvation He has accomplished for you? Do you comprehend the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? Again, I think this is what it means to take the helmet of salvation. The Christian is to forever grow in his comprehension of these things. He is to think upon them. He is to consider these this marvelous salvation that that belongs to him, and he is to lift up his head with joy and confidence, knowing that the victory has already been won by our great king. Sixthly and lastly, Paul commands us to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword is the only offensive weapon mentioned in this passage. All other pieces of armor are defensive. And the sword for the Christian is the word of God. It is called the sword of the Spirit because it is the sword which the Spirit of God supplies. The Spirit inspired the Word of God. And the Spirit does apply the Word to the believer. He uses it to convict of sin, to instruct in the way of life, and to encourage the hearts of those who belong to God. And the believer is to take up this sword to fight back against the evil one as he attacks The posture is still defensive, friends. We are to take a stand. But certainly as we take a stand against the evil one, it is imperative that we fight back. And this we are to use the Word of God to do. This is the very thing that Christ did. Remember being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He he repelled the attack of the evil one by answering him three times over, It is written. It is written. It is written. Even Christ fought the spiritual battle, just as we do now. And as He fought it, being clothed with the armor of God, the armor that was His, He fought back against the evil one with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It is written, He said. So while it is true that the blows of the evil one may be absorbed and deflected by the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the Christian has been supplied with a weapon with which to strike back, that is, the living an active word of God. Regarding the word of God, Charles Hodge has said, this puts to flight all the powers of darkness, the word of God does. The Christian finds this to be true in his individual experience. It dissipates his doubts 
It drives away his fears. It delivers from the power of Satan. It is also the experience of the church collective. All her triumphs over sin and error have been affected by the word of God. So long as she uses this and relies on it alone, she goes on conquering. But when anything else, be it reason, science, tradition, or the commandments of men, is allowed to take its place or share its office, then the church, or the Christian, is at the mercy of the adversary. Brothers and sisters, let us take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so that we might repel the attacks of the evil one. Once again, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I do pray that you would move each one of us individually as your people, and even us corporately, as your church, to be daily girded for battle. If we do not see it, Lord, and if we do not realize it, help us to see that we do live in enemy territory. There is a hostile enemy who seeks to devour us. Help us to know this for sure. And as we come to know it, as we come to believe it truly, Lord, may we never go about a single day of our lives without this armor which you have provided. If there is within us a complacent spirit, a casual spirit, a spirit that is naive, Lord, we pray that you would drive it out. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us understanding concerning the spiritual battle that rages. And give us also the, the wisdom that we need and the courage to be well prepared to fight it. Help us to stand individually in our homes and as a church for our good and the glory of your name. In the name of Christ, we say all of these things, and all of God's people say, Amen.